Welcome to the Connected Insurance Podcast, presented by Agency Revolution. Listen to interviews with the most influential people in the insurance industry. Learn the most important strategies, tactics, trends, and challenges facing today's independent insurance agents and brokers. Subscribe today and get updates delivered right to your inbox. And now, without further delay, the Connected Insurance Podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Michael Jans, co-founder of Agency Revolution, and today, absolutely delighted to be your podcast host. And I want to welcome you to this episode of the Connected Insurance Podcast, presented by Agency Revolution, creators of Fuse. Fuse is the insurance marketing software that skyrockets retention, boosts policy per customer, and makes your clients love your agency without you having to hire more staff programmers or technologists if you haven't done it lately do yourself a favor visit agencyrevolution.com and request a demo point number one apologies from me we've had a long break the short story behind that long break is that after 22 years of living in the country and the last roughly six years of living in the remote desert in Arizona, my wife, Teresa, and I have chosen to live closer to our grandchildren after Luke's kids were in Vietnam with him for about eight years. They're in Portland, Oregon, and I'm pleased to say so am I. And while it is a radical shift from living in the country to the urban lifestyle, we're loving every day. So thanks for asking. And I'm glad to be back. Um, I I want to stress that now, now after a long break, my intent is to move forward in regular conversations with you through this podcast by delivering important conversations only. The kind of conversations that will deliver game-changing insights, strategy, or tactics to support your agency, its growth, and like this conversation today, to increase the value of your agency. My guest, good friend of mine, terrific colleague, uh, somebody I'm proud to consider a um, partner in many ways, Michael Mensch, the CEO of Agency Brokerage Consultants. Michael has assisted in over 400 merger and acquisition transactions and over 1,700 valuations of insurance agencies and brokerages in the U.S., for privately held businesses and lenders, including Live Oak Bank, Westfield Bank, Crestmark Bank, ReadyCap Lending, and Oak Street Funding, Michael has represented clients across the country in selling their independent insurance agencies to local and regional buyers, private equity-backed groups, and publicly traded brokerages. He is a certified business intermediary, CBI, and a certified merger and acquisition master intermediary. He won the Chairman's Circle Award from the IBBA from 2016 to 2021, the IB, IBBA's esteemed CBI of the Year Award in 2020, and was voted to the NACAVA's 40 Under 40 list of emerging leaders in financial consulting and business valuation in 2017. Uh, Michael led the ABC team to winning M&A sources, quote, top firm in 2020 and again in 2021. Um, so 
for those of you who own an independent insurance agency, the simple premise is this, that no matter whether you are selling in 20 months or 20 years, the decisions you make now create the value you get later. So regardless of where you are in your career, regardless the length of your strategic horizon, this is a conversation that literally can mean millions to you. So please pay close attention. Now, before I go, uh, I will mention two things. Number one, I've developed a toolkit based on my work with Michael Mensch. And I'm also hosting regular Zoom executive roundtables, affectionately known as ZERTs, for agency principles in which we discuss growth models, growth plans, and marketing plans to accelerate the, your growth and to increase the valuation of the agency that you own. So if you would like either a copy of my agency valuation toolkit or to participate in a small group ZERT, Zoom Executive Roundtable, where we discuss growth, sharing, networking, and I present the four critical elements of growth and organic growth in an independent insurance agency, then please either email me at michael at michaeljans.com or reach out to me with a direct message on LinkedIn, either again for the agency valuation toolkit or to participate in a small group ZERT. And now without further ado, it really is my privilege and pleasure to introduce you to this conversation with my friend, Michael Mensch. Hello, everybody. Michael Jans, um, co-founder of Agency Revolution, and today delighted to be, uh, in this case, uh, host of an executive roundtable, which we are uh, planning to convert into an audio podcast. It's um, it's my privilege to be able to introduce my friend, Mike Mensch, who is the CEO and founding partner of Agency Brokerage Consultants. Uh, he's a certified business intermediary, a certified merger and acquisition master intermediary. Um, essentially, um, well, one thing that I've noticed <laughs> is that over the years, having helped uh, a lot of agencies grow, that at some point they tend to sell. Um, and what's always uh, been remarkable to me is that um, the very same ones who have taken uh, organic growth seriously and sound uh, business strategy and marketing seriously are also the ones who end up with the highest valuation. So there's definitely some direct line between um, uh, um, how well, um, I, I really it comes down to um, an agency makes certain core strategic decisions and executes on those decisions. And so I've invited my friend, Mike Mensch, um, to, to pull the curtains back and to help agency principals understand what the drivers are that drive high valuations and what the decisions are that you can make now that will create the value you get then and to take the mystery away from the valuation process, but also to urge and encourage everybody 
to take this seriously because the, the decisions that you make now, uh, they they will create that value later. And I know that it's it's easy often to, um, you know, to allow, you know, Wednesday to look like Tuesday and for next week to look like last week and next month to look like last month and, and the years go by and never really just getting around to doing what needs to be done. So I'm stressing that this is important. Um, it's not rocket science. It really comes down to a few core decisions and executing on those decisions. So, um, Michael Mensch, how are you doing? Great, thanks. Yeah, anything else that you, you've done hundreds and hundreds of valuations and mergers and acquisitions, anything else that you wanna add to your bio that you think this audience should be aware of? Uh, that's relevant, no, I mean, okay. original past life was uh, working on a PhD in chemical engineering and then switched. Oh, well, <laughs> so. obviously, yes, uh, <laughs> all right. No, no. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so let's rock and roll on this. Um, I, I have, and I have shared with you in advance, uh, questions that I've created, but also uh, created based on feedback from uh, mastermind members who knew that we were going to be conducting this conversation. So I, I think I've got 12 sort of hardcore questions for you, Mike. Um, and and the, I'm going to start with a couple of basic assumptions and I think we absolutely know what the answer is to them, um, but um, yeah, hearing it, hearing the answer is maybe a bit of a wake-up call. And the first, the first one, the first assumption is every agency sells. Yes, sooner or later, every agency sells. It's inevitable. Yes, and and the agency principal really has the responsibility, the core responsibility for preparing for that sale. Okay. Yes. My, my second um, assumption is that while I think it's probably common for a lot of agency principals not to think about their perpetuation until whatever, 36 months before, you know, they want it to happen or something like that. And I'm sure you've run into that lots of times. It's like, what, you know, <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but, isn't it safe to say that no matter how long the strategic horizon is, whether it's 20 months or 20 years, there are certain strategic decisions that an owner can make that will create the value that they get later on when they sell? Absolutely. Yeah. And okay. it's the strategy depends on how far out you are, too. So, you know, right. If, you know, if you're 20 years away, you'll have one approach. If you're 10 years away, five years away. So. Got it. Okay. So I'm going to leave that out there as kind of an open loop or a bit of a teaser. We So at, at, towards the end, after we go through some of these core questions, I'm going to circle back and say, all right, if you're less than five, you know, if a principal is less than five, what decisions should they make? Five to 10 and 10 or more. Okay. Because they are, uh, uh, um, I'm, I'll agree with the master. There are different decisions to be made. Okay, so let's start with this. Uh, can you explain the role of revenue and earnings in determining the value of an agency? So historically, I remember the day when uh, agency principals, you know, would say, hey, you know, so-and-so got one and a half or so-and-so got two. And it was always a multiple of top-line revenue or commission revenue. Um, but then, you know, and, and that was a while ago. I haven't heard that as much lately, but then EBITDA. 
uh, really became the core driver of valuation. So can you talk to us about revenue and EBITDA as how, uh, in terms of how they're used in helping uh, agencies determine the ultimate uh, valuation? Yeah. So the term EBITDA became most popular because it's coming out of the finance world, the private equity. So yes, long, long time ago, it was always revenue multiple. Uh, and then these private equity buyers came along and everything's been EBITDA discussion. Um, you know, there's good and bad to that. The good is if you have high EBITDA margin and, and uh, you know, then your multiple of revenue is going to be in excess of what it might have been if someone just looked at the uh, looked at, at, at the agency on a multiple revenue basis. But primarily, if you're a million plus in revenue, the discussion is going to be around pro forma EBITDA. If you're under that, there's, you know, varying thresholds, but the buyer is going to be probably talking more about multiple of revenue. And as you get smaller, it's really, you know, there's limitations on what people are willing to pay. But, you know, once you get into that realm of EBITDA, that's when it flips where the, the multiple revenue becomes less of a consideration. Okay. Um, that's why you're uh, hearing it, like five it, times revenue, 10, you know, six times revenue. The crazy, crazy multiples is because it's really like 10 times EBITDA and the, the margins just happen to be really high on those operations. Got it. Okay. Uh, can you give us a, a, a shorthand uh, definition of EBITDA and how how an agency principal should think about it? Sure. So the acronym stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. You know, on a publicly traded company, the EBITDA is whatever's on their financials. You add back depreciation, interest, taxes, and amortization. On a privately held company, we're making a lot of adjustments, taking out the owner's benefits, taking out one-time expenses. So it's really an adjusted EBITDA, mm -hmm. but it's a measure of the earnings before taxes and interest and depreciation and all that and, and discretionary expending. Okay. Um, and certain adjustments are made ultimately. So like you said, owner's comp, which can be right all over the place, right? And probably mm -hmm. can be, okay. Um, yeah. The, uh, the one factor that I guess we go have to explain a lot is that the owner's comp is usually normalized. So EBITDA is not scrapping out all of the owner's comp. It's what's kind of a market comp for the owner, which can vary depending on what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so, uh, so when EBITDA is used, let me ask you a question here. So I'm assuming that, um, let's say for the sake of discussion, uh, you know, two different agencies with a million dollars in EBITDA. Uh, one's, let's say, $5 million revenue agency, and the other one's a $10 million revenue agency. I'm, uh, am I right in assuming that the $5 million agency with the with a million dollars of EBITDA has more value than the $10 million agency with the same EBITDA? Is, uh, Wait, do, do, me that. Well, <laughs> so in other words, do, do, you, do you look at the ratio of EBITDA as a percentage of revenue? So a well-run agency yes. is going to have higher margins. And so it would seem that that would have more value. Correct. Yeah. Okay. The easier example is two agencies, same revenue, different right. margins, right? Right. So, yeah. yeah. So one is that if one's at a 20% EBITDA margin, and let's say they get a 10 times EBITDA or eight times, you know, then, and the other one's at a 40% EBITDA margin, the one with the higher margin is going to be twice the revenue multiple, you know, because it's got double the margin. So same, same EBITDA multiple applied, but the margin is much higher. Got it. 
All right. So um, one of one of the things that it, it seems to me that drives the margins. Um, I mean, it's you know, it's all it's all driven by the book of business. And now, from a marketer's point of view, right? Um, the you know, we know that the relationship between the agency and the book of business, the relationship between the agency and the customer matters. And when, like in Bain's research, you know, we, we they've been able to demonstrate how uh, the relationship, there, there's a direct line between loyalty and customer lifetime value, right? And when customer lifetime value goes up, then clearly margins are going to be higher because it's, yeah. you know, you're, you're, you're getting more revenue from the customers that you once upon a time acquired. Um, you and I have had this conversation before where I, I've sort of argued that, hey, shouldn't, you know, like retention and policy per customer count be somehow included as a number in the formula? And, and, and am I right? I think the conclusion that at least I reached from those conversations is, well, they already are included because if you've got high retention or you've got high policy per customer count, that shows up in your margins, right? It shows up in your growth. And it shows up in your margins. Yes. Yeah. And, and it shows so up like with, with loyalty, it shows up way. in referrals, right? So right. you don't, but but you don't need to count it at a granular level. It's going to show up automatically. Okay. Right. Um, the other thing, the other question I had about EBITDA uh, or margins is typically over the years when I've seen agencies with margins that are um off that seem to be damaged right where there's like like uh, the profitability is low relative to the revenue um like nine times out of ten it shows up in revenue per employee like that's an easy place to go find it now again i'm assuming that you probably it's not normally included as a discrete factor but if the margins are low you're going to find it there typically am i right yeah, because that's always the biggest expense on the PL. So if the margin's low, the first place to look is there. Then you look at headcount, you know, which includes revenue per employee. Right. And if the, the number of employees is correct, and you look at the, the expense per employee. So you start to drill down, but it's yeah, typically it's in that category, the, the people expense, because that's the largest expense. Right. Okay. Got it. I thought so. All right. Um I, I have another question that you and I have discussed before, and uh, and you have you've provided to me a terrific spreadsheet which has been useful in working with my clients. Um, you divide agencies into three big buckets, and each of those buckets has benefits, and there are different ways to run an agency. Um, and they also produce, um, you know, really a measurably different um, margins, right? Profitability. Right. Um, and, and those buckets are a marketing-driven agency. So in other words, I think by our, our shared definition, the business is largely um, driven into the agency by marketing and closed on the inbound sale by an inbound closer of any number of titles, CSR, account executive, producer, whatever. Um, contrast that with a sales-driven agency where the business is largely driven by out, 
found producers who are out of house and <clears throat> basically, you know, in, in the traditional model, they quote unquote own or become vested in a book of business, but they generate the business um, through typical sales prospecting and presenting and closing. And then there's a hybrid, right? So some agencies have producers, but they still drive business either to the producers or in-house with marketing. Um, in your analysis, the most profitable of those is the marketing-driven agency. The least profitable is the sales, and then the you know mid is hybrid. Um, now, when I look at that, I want to be really careful uh, that, that I don't, you know, first of all, I totally agree with those numbers. Um, but there are, there are reasons to have a sales driven agency. Sure. It's a model that works. Um, mm -hmm. it can accelerate growth. Um, it, it, it may comply with the agency's, uh, skill set and so on and so forth. Right. Okay. But when, when, if you would take a moment and, and, um, you know, share any insight you've got on the operation of each of those three models. Sure. So if you look at the, like the best practices studies, which have good data, but there's two, two problems with them. They're one, they're using unadjusted financials and every agency owner writes off different expenses. So you're kind of dealing with uh, that, that, issue where you're looking at financials that are unadjusted. The second one is they're blending across a whole bunch of agencies. So if you look at the composition of the average agency, it's like 40% personal lines, 50% commercial lines, 10% benefits. And it's, what they're really doing is blending different business models together to give you averages. So what I said was there's really, there's a marketing driven where the business coming in the door is based on the agency's marketing activities. And like you said, they're just basically of staff that are writing the orders and, and closing the accounts. And that would be the personal lines agencies. That'd be some niche agencies that are specialized in marketing to a niche. And then you've got the producer-driven model, which is the producers beat the streets and bring the business in and they get a commission. You know, they get paid a new and renewal commission. And then a lot of agencies have somewhere in between where they got some producers and then they're generating, the, the company itself is generating business. The difference is, you know, the marketing-driven agency, what you usually see is there's a, a cap at how large it can get. It's more profitable business model. It's a turnkey business model, meaning it's easier for the owner to step away. But there is a revenue cap that usually see it's, and that number's going up, you know, 10 years ago is a million, six, million, eight of revenue. Now it's, you know, north of 2 million of revenue. That we tend to see that agencies hit a certain size and they can't get above that under that model. There are some exceptions, but that's what I've noticed. The producer-driven model, the benefit is those are your big agencies, you know, the tens of millions of revenue. Um, you know, it's the expense model is in the margins are much less because you're paying out 30, 40% of the commission revenue to those producers for the business they've written, but you can scale it up higher. The struggle with that one is that it deals with a lot. You have to be a manager of salespeople because you have to coach those producers and, and make sure you're setting goals with them and everything. And then the last one is the hybrid where you've got some producers and then you've got your own marketing strategy. The struggle with that last one, which is a lot of agencies, is the owner's juggling so much between trying to run the, the, the regular part of the business that they often neglect managing the producers. So the producers 
build up a book, a couple hundred thousand of revenue, and then they're just writing it out forever and they're, they're just no more growth in their book. So I, I think, you know, I think that's a better way to look at agencies than to look at blended averages and benchmarks. And I've shared with you the financial kind of the, the benchmarking financial for each one of those type of models, but that, that's probably a better way to think about the business than just look going to the best practices and looking at what the numbers should be. Got it. All right. Um, so let, let's, let's, let's talk about something that's o over which the principal has maybe less control. Okay. <laughs> Cause I know this factors into your overall equation, the location of an insurance agency and its impact on value. So location to some extent matters. Um, and to the extent an agency has a location, um, and maybe it's working negatively against them, what can they do about it? Um, so first off, yeah, the, the whole remote remote agencies is becoming more popular and it's actually an attractive model because, you know, for a lot of reasons, uh, you know, where you're located, it's kind of hard. If your clients are local, it's kind of hard to change that variable of your agency. So, you know, if you're in a rural town or something like that, that's hard. So, but it does affect because, you know, the part of the value equation is the buyer pool that's out there. And if you're in a small town, it's not a lot of buyers. If you're in a metro area, a lot more buyers. So that one aspect is, you know, of the location affects the value. And then the other part about location is if the agency is dependent on the location, like as if it's a non-standard agency or something like that, that makes a difference too, because then it's harder to somebody to buy the book of business and consolidate and everything because it's so location dependent. Mm -hmm. um, outside of that, you know, uh, the quality of the office and the operations, you know, the buyer buyers do look at that because it's an indication of how well run the business is. So, you know, just like buying a house, it's you look at that and and it tells you a lot about the person that's been living in that house. So, yeah. So if, Okay, um, so so let's because I, I've got clients who live, uh, work in uh, you know like rural areas, um, and a, a number of them have overcome the sort of inherent difficulty by becoming niche players. So basically, having a, like a, uh, you know going going from being a personalized agency in a small town in in Oregon, for example, to you know having a footprint for a commercial niche in 17 states yeah that's awesome in, in that case you know have they more or less eliminated the 100%. location problem okay yeah. got it all right valuable all right uh next question um if you could talk about the significance of an agency's carriers like are, is there an optimal number uh is there an optimal yeah. um uh quality of carrier yeah. So get highest valuation for, again. So for from the buyer's perspective, the most valuable carriers are the ones that they can consolidate and get more more money out of. Right. So the national carriers offer a different profit sharing. You know, if you aggregate volume, then you get higher profit sharing, you get higher commission rates. So, you know, your travelers nationwide, all the national carriers tend to be the, the highest value in the buyer's perspective for that reason. Um, in terms of optimal i mean agencies should try to apply like this 70 30 80 20 rule where you're trying to con concentrate as much business as you can with your handful of carriers that's going to 
you know, increase the amount of income you're getting from them. It's going to make management of the book of business a lot easier. What we see often when there's a like a massive spread of uh, carriers on the, the book of business. I mean, in Florida, like we'll see agencies with a hundred different appointments. No, not not exaggerating at all. <laughs> yeah, They're like brokers and carriers. But it's one of two reasons. It's either they've done they've done a number of acquisitions and never just consolidated that we see that, or two. Right. There's no management of the sales team, and it's like go write the business, and you know whatever whatever's the lowest bid wins. So, you know if you're really trying to optimize the revenue coming out of it, then you want to consolidate it to the top 30 carriers that you have, and and from an, a sale perspective too, it's a lot easier for somebody coming in to transfer that book of business than if they have to go out to 30, 40, 50, or 100 different companies to get it transferred. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So a manageable number with like an 80-20 concentration. Yes. I mean, we usually see, let's say, 70-75% of the business with the top five carriers. You know, if it's a bigger uh -huh. agency, maybe, maybe top 10 carriers. Yeah. But, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. All right. Uh, talk to us about optimal lines of business and clientele. So, you know, we have choices in this industry, a lot of choices. Um, and, and unfortunately, I've, I've seen what seems like way too many agencies approach them, approach those choices kind of passively. Like we do, we sell this because we used to sell this. And so we still sell this. Uh, whereas we've got opportunities for, um, you know, niches and targets and lines of business that, you know, can influence the business. And presumably, uh, you know, I know this from the organic growth perspective, and I'm, you know, presumably this also factors into the valuation perspective. There, there are lines and there are classes that are just better. Talk to us about um, Well, that. it would be the obvious, right? The uh, higher retention uh, lower service requirement, direct bill. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are generally the carry higher revenue per account if you didn't get it. Um, you know, like we, I've I've looked at. Uh, I'll, I'll give the example of an insure tech once that was, uh, 10, 10 million, almost ten million of revenue, negative two and a half million of cash flow. Yeah. Uh, they didn't, what they didn't understand was they were chasing online auto business and the retention was like 55%. So they're just churning, they're spending all this money, they drive the leads, paying them for the sales expense, and then just churning it. And they could never make that model successful because they were chasing the wrong type of business. But because they were technology guys, they didn't know that out of the gate. <laughs> yeah, so, they, they should have had a conversation with me prior to launch. <laughs> yeah, um, so, okay. Yeah, so the ideal ones are the, obvi the obvious things: so the higher retention, lower service, better revenue, direct bill, and then, then the bad ones are the opposite: lower retention. You know, a lot of stuff's moving to the NS market, but yeah, as you know, that's more work and tends to be lower commission percentage, even. So, okay, got it. So let's let's break it down a little bit in personal lines. Then, presumably, uh, from a retention point of view, a homeowner's policy adds value. Yes, has has more stickiness generally than a personal auto policy. Correct. Okay, um, and then of course multiple policies per customer has more stickiness 
Yes. Regardless. And, okay. Yeah. And, and it's easy revenue. Well, not easy revenue, but it's easier revenue. Yeah. Uh, it's easier revenue. Um, and then um, in commercial lines, any insights on classes of business or lines of business that meet your criteria? Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say like classes, I would say it's, it's always the niche agencies, the ones that special, and you're going to like this because I know it's right up your alley, but it's the yeah. ones that specialize. Well, I, I like it because I know that it's true. Yeah. 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 The ones that specialize because think of it like a manufacturing plant, right? If your agency sells everything, it's like having to break down the manufacturing line, reset to do the next thing versus if you just do the same thing over and over again, you got an assembly line that just keeps running. And, and so, you get good at it, right? I mean, you, you also, you yeah, you, so, so your customer satisfaction goes way up. Yeah. Like an uh, employee well, satisfaction goes up too, because they know they're doing a good job. Yeah. Um, one of the, I mean, one of the best agencies I sold the client, uh, he specialized in a market that was an ENS market, which is generally not, you know, generally requires more work and accounting, but he had a 98% retention. He like retained all of his clients and they just had an assembly line of how they renewed it every year. They just kept it, you know, they kept the business, they blocked the markets, kept the business. And it was in a market that the premiums were growing pretty steadily. So in like five years, the revenue, all you had to do was hold on to everybody and the revenues doubled. Got it. All right. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is maybe niching as a segue to this question for me, in my mind. Um, Presumably, growth rate has a positive impact on valuation. So we've talked about EBITDA. So let's say, you know, there's a million dollars in EBITDA uh, for an agency. Um, so, so let's do an agency A versus agency B comparison. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, you know, let's say we've got uh, an agency, you know, with a, a million, two, both agencies have the same EBITDA, a million dollars, but one of them has had, let's say, a 20% annual growth rate. So boom, 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 you know, they've gotten there fairly quickly. And then the other one, let's say, has been slow and steady, 5% growth rate year after year after year. Well, it would seem to me that uh, an acquirer would see that the first machine, you know, the machine that grows at 20% per year, is going to give me a better return, I'm gonna to have to pay a little bit more for it. Am I right? Yes. Okay. And, and uh, you know, everybody's been watching the news, but they're from the private equity buyer side, the last couple of years, a few of them went to market to do a recap, which is basically when they sell from one private equity group to the other. And a couple of them failed their recap. And the, one of the main take-home messages was they didn't have good enough organic growth. So what we've seen over the last year and a half is a shift from just buying agencies to, okay, we need to be a little more focused on the agencies that have a good growth track record. And so we've seen them go from buying anything, paying, you know, whatever the multiple was to, all right, let's just go after the really strong growth ones and let's pay above, you know, let's pay mm -hmm. a higher multiple and be more selective to, because- yeah, there's two principles of value, business valuation. One is the current value based on the current income stream. The second is the future value. So they're going to do run projections if you got a 20% growth rate and see that in five years, the revenues will double if you keep that growth rate up or more than that. So. Right on. 
Okay, got it. Perfect. Um, talk to us about the role of staff and producers and the way that that might affect valuation. Uh, in what, is terms... a, what does a buyer look at when they, when they see that, you know, an agency, when they look at an agency's staff and they look at an agency's producers, what, what do they look for? And, 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 and are there times where there's a negative impact or times where there's a positive impact on valuation? Uh, well, I mean, first off, every everybody's looking for good, experienced employees in this market. Yeah. As we know, for the last two two years, there's been a labor shortage. Mm-hmm. So the buyers, because clients ask us this too, the buyers want to keep everybody intact. When they, unless the pl- employee is a problem or something like that, they're not looking to shed employees typically. Um, but you know, there's the the issues we run into are uh, producer compensation rates producer ownership of their book of business. You know, that's probably the most common from an M&A transaction point of view is the, the buyer's got a certain commission split, the, the seller, because they're a smaller agency, maybe had to entice the producer with the higher commission split. And then we've got to work through the mechanics of getting them to the, the buyer's producer model. Um, so that's that's one of the hiccups we usually run into. Other than that, I mean, support staff, it's... Uh, you know, there's, they want the tenured employees. So I really, there's not a whole lot of questions that come out of that. Yeah. Okay. So, so, um, oh, sound management practices in regards to, to managing producers matters, right? Decent contracts and. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's one of the things we talked about. Long-term planning is, you know, you may be 20 years away from, even thinking about selling, but if you sign up a producer on a contract that's going to be an issue down the road, you created a problem for yourself in the future. Meaning you sign them up at a 80% or 70% or whatever commission split or something like that, that problem eventually is going to have to get fixed. So you're just creating a future problem. Got it. Yeah. All right. Um, Talk to us. A lot of agencies have contracts with third parties for various reasons. Talk to us how, about how that might impact valuation. Um, I usually say, you know, the, the fewer the obligations going into a sale, the better, meaning don't, you know, try not to sign a 10-year lease or a five-year lease or, or, or something like that, unless it's tied to revenue. So uh, if it's something that's driving revenue, a relationship or something like that, then that's an agreement that you want to make sure is, you know, going to continue, but uh, expense obligations, you try to minimize them. Mm-hmm. Leading okay. up to a sale. Got it. Um, technology. I'm sure you're running into, oh, I'm sure you're probably running into a ton more tech now than you were 10 years ago. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> how does, yeah. How does, how do buyers view technology when they buy an agency? Uh, yeah. What, what is it doing? I mean, we've, We've we've certainly I mean I've certainly run into folks that spend half a million dollars, million dollars, whatever, trying to build out a tech, and they're like, well, this is the greatest underwriting software. It's you know it's a platform online that we can quote and bind or whatever. But they don't have the revenues. They don't have the. It hasn't increased profitability, and that's exactly how the buyer is going to look at it. Is what is it actually doing? So uh, if it's good technology, it should be doing one or the other. It should be helping drive revenue, or it should be helping with operating efficiency. Okay. Um, so yeah, so I'll, I'll, um, I'll make a not so subtle argument for 
proven technology and technologies that it, it seems, you know, I kind of divide technologies and, and agency technologies into two big chunks. Technologies that support efficiencies, so internal back office stuff that compresses time and technologies that increase effectiveness. So in other words, they um, uh, front of the house, customer facing technologies that allow you to multiply your effectiveness outside. Um, and and uh, I'm sympathetic to agencies who from time to time will test a technology and discover that it doesn't necessarily give them the return that they wanted. That's pretty standard operating procedure, but the ability, it's, I, I think it's very helpful to have a technology buying process that limits the amount of failures and increases the um, success of the technologies that you do buy. So yeah, I, I think, I mean, obviously there's no agency, there's zero agencies I'm sure that sell that don't have like core technologies that really matter. So this is part of the job now, isn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, off the shelf technology is one thing. I, I When you asked that question, I thought you meant like customized, develop. Uh, yeah. Because I've run into plenty of those who develop their own technology, spend a lot of money on it. But at the end of the day, it's not really driving much yeah, value. Welcome, welcome to the technology club. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot harder on the other side than you think it's going to be. Okay. Um, all right, so I, I want to I want to circle back to the the thing we started with at the beginning of this conversation. Every agency will sell. Uh, the decisions that an agency principal makes now, I mean, like maybe from this very conversation, an agency might have some insights. Um, but decisions need to be made, and and the decisions that get made and executed now create the future valuation for later. Um, but um, there are different phases and you've, you've suggested structuring these phases as agencies with 10 years or more on their strategic horizon, agencies with between five and 10 and agencies with less than five. So let's, let's take them one at a time. Sure. Um, for the agency with a good 10 years or the agency principal who's, you know, sees his horizon as at least 10 years before they sell, what are the big decisions that they should be contemplating? Yeah, that's uh, that's the growth stage. So mm -hmm. it's the focus is investing in people, investing in technology, you know, just you don't have to pay as much attention to profit. Obviously, you want the business to still be profitable, but it's drive growth first you know, and invest in people and technologies to make that happen. Uh, okay, so let me uh, uh, just dig into that one for a moment. So um, they really, they don't need to probably sweat all the details on their EBIT or their margin, but they probably should pay attention to best practices like, you know, having optimal revenue per employee, like having the yes. right size yeah. team for the right agency. Otherwise, it gets hard later on, you know, like if you have 10 plus years of running inefficiencies, it's, it is hard all of a sudden to say, oh, now we're going to be an efficient agency and I'm going to, you know, terminate people, and, right? Yeah. So, it, but I, I mean, I, we have clients that uh, like, I've got a couple that are owned agencies owned by mortgage companies and they're just plowing money into growing and they're growing by leaps and bounds, like a million yeah. revenue a year. Right. They're, they're losing money, but they're investing in that growth because when and then, you know, we're working with them as 
get towards the the revenue target that they're shooting for, then they'll start to pull back on the expenses. Yeah, but, right, right. Yeah, the, the, gonna... the, exp the expense they have is probably the accordion of marketing cost. Right, sales and all that. Not, right. not, not a poorly managed workforce. Yes, yeah. Right. Okay. But it's, you know, you, you've got to put the investment in the front end. Uh, so as you know, as you're scaling up, you got to get people to get the revenue to follow and everything like that. The good metric, to, I mean, Reagan has that rule of 20, which is a good metric. It says, if you take half of your EBITDA margin plus your organic growth, it should be about 20. So if you're at 40% EBITDA margin, zero growth, your rule of 20 is 20. If you're at a 20% EBITDA margin and a 10% growth, your rule oh, of 20. Oh, interesting. Okay, that's an interesting rule. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. So that kind of gives um, you that, that weighs in both the growth and the, the profit margin. So the agency that has um, 10 years or more focus on growth uh, and, and based on this conversation, um, you know, there's wisdom in contemplating niche marketing, um, perhaps moving up market in a lot of cases, generally moving up market. Uh, more more revenue per customer. Um, and then, you know, from a marketer's point of view, uh, n focusing not just on customer acquisition, but also customer lifetime value, where we realize long-term okay. growth. Did, okay. did I share that that uh, graph that I created on retention? Oh, uh, you did with me, yes. And I can pass that on later. Yeah, so yeah. You, you have this graph of three retention models. Yeah, so I just modeled it out, same basically same type of growth rate, but 82%, 86%, and 94, no, 82, 88, and 94% retention. And you look at it, if going from 82 to 86%, over five years, you've got 16% more policies. Over 10 years, you got 33%. So a 6% increase in retention increases the policy count by 33% at the end of 10 years. Mm -hmm. You can get all the way to 94, it's an 81% increase. In yeah, it gets pretty crazy it's, up in the yeah, higher like, margins. Yeah, it's, it's like compound interest. So, I mean, I don't think anybody's really thought about that before, but it just compounds over time. If you can get your retention up and hold it longer period, and as you know, then to grow takes a lot less work because you're not replacing as much business as you were. Yeah. I have, I've got a similar model. I call it the customer lifetime extender. And it basically demonstrates how long, how many years your customers will be with you, your customer years based on retention. And I, I mean, it, you know, you start adding like, you know, you go from, you know, 82 to 86 or 86 to 90, you add four points and it's like really gets ridiculous. But if, if once you start getting into, you know, you start hitting those low and mid nineties, or I've got some clients in the higher nineties, it's like, yeah, you know, your customer, this agency's customer is going to be with them for 20 years. And this agency's customer is going to be with them for 5.3 years. Right. And so it's like, uh, that that's huge. Like, oh, they get like 15 years of free customers compared to this agency. Um, I'll, I'll speak to that for a moment and then I want to move on. It's That usually comes down to one of two problems, either attracting the wrong kind of customer. So making strategic decisions about who you're going to bring into the agency really matters. And then also the nature of the relationship with the customer once they become one focusing on those two things yeah, matters. But often, like if, you, if you're getting the wrong customers, I've got some clients who've come in with, you know, like 80, 81, 82%. And, and, and you know, particularly if they get hammered with a, you know, big premium increases and there's a 
carrier willing to buy some market share, boom. If they have bad customers, they can't fix it. Uh, you can't, you can't, you know, it's like, it's like watering weeds, you know, you, you, it just doesn't work. And so, um, you know, paying attention to getting the right customer really matters and then paying attention to nurturing that customer matters. Okay, so growth phase, those long-term clients who have 10 years or more. Five to 10 years is kind of an interesting, you know, sort of middle period. You know, the agency right. principal is probably thinking, gosh, do I focus on growth or do I focus on margins? Right. And uh, that, I mean, that's the, so the ideal exit is one where you step away and, and the agency doesn't miss a beat, right? So, we say that the five to 10 year period is where you really try to extract yourself from the business. Meaning if you're managing accounts, can you move those over to an account manager or producer and you start to train some of the other employees to do some, and the objective is not to go shoot more rounds of golf, but it's really to just get the business running. So that way, when you are ready to exit, you don't, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not held up. Cause what happens is if you're tied into the business too much, the buyer's going to want you to stay post-transaction. So meaning like that's where they throw in earnouts right. and things like that. And so if you can work towards that goal of pulling yourself out of the business, transferring client relationships and things like that, that makes your exit a lot shorter once you get to the end. So that's kind of the window that, you know, it, it doesn't always work, meaning you can bring in a producer thinking you can train them and do all this stuff. It doesn't always work. That's why I say give yourself a little bit longer runway than you think just to make, just trial yeah. and error and work through it. Okay, so that that's a period where um, the insurerpreneur really needs to be an entrepreneur, really uh, a building, um, working on the business, not in the business, yeah. as much as possible, building systems that growth. Okay, so then we get the uh, principal who's thinking he'd like to exit in five years or less. Presumably, now we've got a we've we've got a. Uh, uh, deliver an agency that's got good margins, but we don't want the growth to like, right. you know, like all, all of a sudden it's a non-growing agency. That's not good either. So what kind yeah, of decisions? There's a, a delicate balance there, right? But yeah, um, you know, so the, the whole mindset is to realize when you go to sell, somebody's going to be looking at your books for, you know, three, at least three years of your books. So right. uh, clean them up, you know, make sure the tax returns match the internal P&Ls, start to clean up the books, make sure the data in the management system is accurate. And right, leading into that runway, because it's going to be the prior three years up through the transaction or the financials that are being looked at the closest and start to pull back on some of the expenses, start to clean up the P&L. Yeah, you don't want to do it to the, to the the uh, at the cost of revenues, causing revenue attrition, but you know, there's certain things you can start to trim down because your mindset is now a little different than when you're in the growth mindset and just hiring and spending money to try and drive revenue. Now it's let's let's pull back a little bit to get the profitability higher. Okay. Um, well, before I turn the recording off, uh, Mike, uh, if you would take a moment and tell us about agency brokerage consultants and the services that you provide the industry. Sure. We are a valuation and M&A advisor. So the last 15 years, I've been, I probably handled about 2,000 valuations, 400, been involved in 400 transactions. Uh, we work for, our clients are usually the seller, but we also do some 
consulting work for buyers. So a lot of the PE backed buyers will hire us for diligence support services and things like that. Uh, so um, our goal is to work with the agency owner over a period of years to help them get to the point where they're ready to exit, they can maximize the value. We've had clients that we worked with for 10 years or something like that, just helping them clean up their business, get the, helping them with growth and everything. And so that's usually like the most successful engagements we have are the ones long-term relationships where we help them get to a place where they've doubled the value of their agency and uh, working with them until the timing is right for them. Um, we're also launching a uh, tax consulting business. So I've got a friend that's a tax attorney, an M&A attorney, and we're bringing in a CPA. So because a lot of these transactions are complicated and the average CPA doesn't know all the tax rules, uh, we're, we're launching another CPA type firm to help agencies like clean up their books, get, file their taxes right. And then when the transaction happens, file the taxes and the best way to minimize their tax obligation. And uh, best way for people to find out more is your website or what do yep. you recommend? Uh, agencybrokerage.com is our website or okay. call me, email me. All right. And your email is? If, yeah, M Mensch, which is M-E-N-S-C-H at agencybrokerage.com. Got it. All righty. Um, Mike, in a moment here, I'm going to, I'm going to turn off the recording and I'll open this up to see if anybody in the audience has any questions. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Connected Insurance Podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share it with your peers and colleagues. Explore the Connected Insurance family of resources for insurance agents and brokers by visiting agencyrevolution.com and clicking media. Subscribe and get updates delivered right to your inbox. 